Welcome to the Run Run Live 4.0 podcast, where we plumb the daily adventure of endurance sports. Let us seize this precious moment together and squeeze the life from it like a golden lemon sent to us fresh today from the emissaries of the gods. Terribly happy guy Then he ate a moldy pumpkin pie Then he thought that he just couldn't die So Ned, he laughed so hard and made him cry Made him Hello, my friends, and welcome to episode 4-370-370 of the Run Run Live podcast. How are your summers going? Have you managed to take some time off from work? Spend some time walking on the beach with your family? Good. You know, you have to know when to refresh yourself, right? Sharpening the saw is what Stephen Covey called it as one of his seven habits of highly successful people. It's also Ironman and Ultra season. So congrats to all my friends who did Ironman Lake Placid last weekend. Looks like they got really good weather for it. Successful outing for a lot of people. And I see many of you may be struggling with the summer heat where you live, and I feel sorry for you. But we still haven't gotten the bad summer heat here yet at all. We had a couple days with the humidity and the heat last week. But this week it's been cool and beautiful, just like spring weather. And I've been grinding away on my training. I'm fairly certain for an October marathon at this point. I put a couple of 40-plus mile weeks in since we last talked. And that's on four to five days of running. So you do the math. Coach had me do two hilly hour-and-a-half runs both weeks on Tuesday and Wednesday, back-to-back, and a hill workout on Friday, and then a long run on Sunday of about 15 or or two-and-a-half hours, somewhere around there, two to two-and-a-half hours, depending on where I'm running it. And I've been mixing them up between the roads and the trails just to stay strong. My legs feel fine. Of course, some small aches and pains. But nothing indicative of a problem. My engine continues to be very strong. My heart is really strong in these runs. The only thing I'm lacking is that big volume and the speed, which I can do. I can put that on pretty quickly. So interestingly, I'm training without any fuel, too. Just water. So two hours is about what I consider my fuel threshold. And I'm strong right through all these mid-distance runs with no fuel. That bodes well for my training capacity. I got a great benefit from my 5 at 5 project in June, which is that I'm rolling out of bed early and getting these workouts in 
because the cadence just feels right. I'm up anyhow. I'd usually wait till the afternoon or the evening, especially this time of year, but this is great to get them done out of the way. It's nice and cool in the morning. So today we've got the interview with Tim J.P. Collins about anxiety that I was talking about. And I try to bring on guests that are interesting to you folks. I had listened to Tim get interviewed a few times, and I really liked his message. I wanted to bring him on and delve specifically into the dynamics of stress and anxiety around amateur endurance athletes. And in section one, I'm going to talk about a revolution in data that's about to happen for training. I'm a technology geek, and I I think we're on the verge of something new, on a whole new era of training enablement. So we'll talk about that a little bit. And in section two, I'm going to talk about the concept of lifelong learning. Here's, Here's an anxiety tip for you when you're out on your vacation. Good timing for this. When you're out walking on the beach... I want you to select a small, smooth stone. Something interesting, about the size of a coin, a large coin. Something you can put in your pocket. And this is going to be your comfort stone, your totem. And when you're reflecting on a time when you were at peace with the universe, you take out this stone, the comfort stone, and you sort of rub it. You play with it. Roll it around your hand. Rub it. Feel it. Associate that peace of mind with this stone, with your stone. And now that you've got it primed like that, you can carry it around with you. And when you go into stressful situations, it's in your pocket. And you can reach in there and feel it and get that reminder of a peaceful state. And you can have it with you on your desk for stressful phone calls. It's a nice physical reminder that there is peace in this world and it is partially at least, if not all, in your control. I had a, I had a good run, a good uh, couple weeks with my red raspberry bushes out in my garden. They kept me in smoothies and enlightened my oatmeal for a couple weeks, but they seem to have taken a break now. They've petered out. They'll keep producing, but not at that same volume. But the black raspberry bushes, the ones that I did not plant, the ones that I have been cutting back and fighting with for years. Oh, they're full of ripe berries. So let's just review that, shall we? The bushes I planted, cultivated, watered, tended, fertilized, they had some berries. But the weeds that I fought with my machete that found their way onto uncultivated land that compete with the other bushes in wildlife, those bushes, they're resplendent with bounty. So what's the lesson? Sometimes... You have to give in to what fits in that environment and stop trying to control everything. So enjoy your berries and on with the show. A quick reminder to you that Run Run Live, the podcast, is ad-free and listener-supported. And what does that mean? It means that you don't have to listen to me trying to sound sincere about stamps.com or Audible. Although, FYI, my Marathon BQ book is on Audible. It's quite good. (laughs) We do have a membership option where you can become a member. As a special thank you for that, I will give you access to members-only audio. And there are some book reviews, some odd philosophical thoughts, some zombie stories, and I curated some old episodes for you to listen to. I recently added that guy who had his foot removed so he could keep training. (laughs) That's a great interview. And my first call with uh, Jeff Galloway. 
And curated, by the way, means I add some introductory comments and I edit them up a bit. So anyhow, become a member so I can keep paying my bills. And on with the show. It is when we learn to leave our comfort zone that we find ourselves communing with our inner strength. The data revolution in training. Heart rate versus ventilatory threshold. So we try to train the best we can with the tools we have. And what is the best? What does that mean? What is the best training? The challenge we have had over the years is that there is a gap between the available data and what we need to measure to find that best. It would be great if we could wire up a real-time feed of all our body's vital biochemical electrical outputs, but we can't. We have to work with what we have. And the good news is that what we have, we can get pretty close. We can get very effective training with what we have today. The bad news is that it's still an approximation. And the really good news is that we are on the verge of getting much better, much better data. And with that data, much better tools for training will be enabled. But first, how did we get here and where exactly are we? The history of training has been a history of approximation. Challenged by a lack of perfect data, most coaches do the best they can with what they can get. And historically, this has meant treating the human machine of the athlete as a black box. A coach would try a certain input, like a level of training or a specific cycle of training or a specific type of training, and then measure the outputs. They could correlate the inputs to the outputs. And this has led us to where we are today. Coaches, over the course of their training lives, discovered certain types of training and certain cycles of training produce better results. It's a valid form of experimentation. But due to the complex nature of the human black box, it's also rife with questionable conclusions. Chief among these questionable conclusions is the tendency to deconstruct to a specific input and make sweeping extrapolations about that one input. When you hear anyone saying, the most important thing you can do is X, whether that X is a diet or a training element, that's probably oversimplification. But what this approximation has allowed us to do is to come to general conclusions. If you train more, you get better results. If you train harder, you get better results. But how much more? And how much harder? Where are those diminishing returns? How is it different for each athlete? I can confidently tell you, as I often do, that if you've never done any speed work as part of your training, if you add that to your training, you'll get faster. That's a generalization, an approximation. I can also say with confidence that if you've been training in the 20 to 30 mile per week range for your marathons, loading that up to 50 or 60 miles a week, will dramatically improve your marathon results. But it's still an approximation. Miles and time. How much? How many? That's the basic data that we've always had to work with. And this is a very non-specific and rough implement to build training plans around. Still, it probably gets you 80% of the performance. But it leaves a lot on the table. The next big leap in applying data to training is using heart rate. 
So heart rate brings more granularity into our training. What it really gives us is a way to track our effort level. And why is that important? Because in training, your body has this threshold where the biochemistry changes as your effort intensifies. You know it as the aerobic threshold or the lactic threshold. This is the point where the muscles can't keep up and start lactic acid buffering. Stay with me. So what we discovered is that training below this threshold moves the threshold. Heart rate is a better, still an approximation, but a better way of determining where you are in relation to that threshold. We can move that threshold and run longer and faster. Heart rate doesn't determine that, but heart rate is the best way we have to approximate it. And what we really want to know, what we really need to know, is what is the athletic capacity of our body? How far can we go? How deep is that well? And we can actually measure that. It's called max VO2. The max VO2 test. This directly measures your aerobic capacity by measuring the volume of your lungs and correlating it to the effort. It's been hard for athletes to access this data because up to this point you need a lab to be able to measure max VO2. But we're on the cusp of being able to take this ventilatory threshold data, gathering this data, and take that out of the lab and into the training. And this will give us a direct measurement of what we have been approximating with heart rate. So being able to measure the ventilatory threshold real time will allow a finer tuning of the athlete's training. And we will be able to move the conversation beyond are you training too much or too hard to specifically where you are training in relation to that specific athlete's capacity to perform on that day in that moment. And we will have the specific real-time data on that athlete's response to the training effect and to recovery. And it's not just the data. It's what we can do with this data. We will soon be able to start setting loose learning algorithms on that data. And what used to be my coach telling me to take a day off will be an artificial intelligence telling me mid-run to slow down, lower my effort, or, or even call it a day. So we're shaving away at the perfect training plan. We're getting closer. But we'll never get there. It's Zeno's paradox. Reductio ad absurdum. Achilles and the tortoise. There will always be a better set of data. We can always do better. There's no end point. But these are exciting times for endurance athletes. We're on the edge of a data revolution in training. And now for today's featured interview. So, Tim J.P. Collins, good to have you on the podcast here. Happy to be here. Yeah, Thank you, you. You do a lot of these now. You're like a uh, podcast maniac. I hear you I do do quite a few. It's good. Yeah. It's good. Gets you a good opportunity to practice your story, right? Exactly. Go get the word out. Yeah. So, um, give us the 200 words or less on uh, who you are, what you're doing, and kind of why you think we're talking here. Yeah, so I work with people around stress and anxiety. Those are the kind of my specialist subjects. And much like many people, it's kind of born from my own experience. And then I started to self-experiment, which I can go into a bit more. But I started to sort of figure out what worked best for me. And then as I started to 
sort of talk about that. Other people were interested in me expanding on it and sharing bits of what I was up to. So that's kind of how it started out. And it's taken on a bit of a life of its own where I'm now on my podcast. I'm up to 240 episodes or something. And um, there's lots of interviews and content in there. But it's a subject which I think we're kind of crossing a threshold in the mental health space of it going from realizing that it's kind of moving from that stigmatized place to just so many people are kind of being a, a lot more open and we're realizing that it's a, just a very human condition as opposed to a chronic disorder which is what it's been categorized as historically so things are changing for sure so how do you draw the line or differentiate between anxiety and stress and fear and all the other things on that spectrum that people tend to talk about I think that, first of all, like all of these emotions are very natural. If we look at our kind of ancestral humans, we were pre-wired to have a negative bias. We're looking for threats. We have an amazing threat detection system. That's why the human species has endured as long as it had. If we were all lackadaisical lying around drinking cocktails, we would have been eaten by tigers. So it has to be that we're looking for threats. And so... Fear is essentially that, where we're looking for what are the things which could kill us, which could hurt us, and which could threaten our lives. And then anxiety, for me, is when that kind of gets out of whack and the event could be over, but we're still thinking about it, or we're kind of projecting into the future and saying, what if that happens again? Yeah. And again, this is natural stuff. If you think about the caveman, he walks past the big rock and out from behind the rock jumps a saber-toothed tiger and tries to kill him, and he manages to survive and on, keep going on his way, the next time he walks past that rock, he's probably going to do a double take, right? Yeah. And so yeah. the modern-day equivalent of that is somebody gets on an airplane, experiences some turbulence, thinks the plane's going to crash, which clearly, in many cases, it isn't. But the next time they get on a plane, they're like, what if it happens again? Yeah, that's, so, that's interesting. So you're saying anxiety is perhaps more episodic to the person and maybe a bit sticky in that way too, right? So you're, you're getting your sort of internally reliving those fear episodes yeah if we break it down to kind of the brain we have the amygdala which is that croc brain is the part of our brain which is instinctive it doesn't need us to think about stepping out of the road when the cars come in we just do it we don't have time to think so that's the lifesaver yeah and in many cases that kicks off a message of you should be afraid and our prefrontal cortex which is our intelligent thinking brain then interprets it in, and in many cases will say well you were really afraid of the shark fin in the ocean turns out it's a kid's toy no need yeah. to worry anymore panic over right yeah um anxiety is when we basically when the amygdala kicks off that feeling and we get afraid of the feeling mm. so we yeah. become fearful of the tension in our stomach or the the tightness in our head or our racing heart rate and we we have fear of the fear and that's the vicious cycle you can get into when you can't break through that right and you sort of carry it around with you like a monkey on your back right right yeah. yeah so one of the things when i was listening to that caused me to reach out to you is that when you boiled it down for your tips and tricks for people a lot of it came down to diet and exercise right so exercise you know i've always known this with the people that i talk to there's a lot of that Similar to your story where you had this event in your life that caused you to sort of change direction, there's a lot of people that I talk to that have that same story arc, right, where they had yeah. some sort of event that caused them to change direction. And what they fell in love with was some sort of endurance running or triathlons or something like that. 
And that became their lifesaver, so to speak, right, to help them, the tool to change their lives. You use that exercise in your own practice when you're counseling people, right? Yeah, for sure. I mean, listen, the truth is, is that exercise and diet solves pretty much everything. All, all <laughs> ailments in people can be solved by those two things, in yeah. whether it's we know people like Dr. Terry Walls who had multiple sclerosis, which was reversed by nutrition. Now they're saying like cancer can be reversed by diet specifically formulated to stop cancer reproduction. So the mental health game has evolved a bit to where now we're looking at things like inflammation in our bodies caused by different types of food, which if you look at the book that came out by Dr. Perlmutter called Grain Brain many years ago, he was talking about gluten intolerances in humans causing Alzheimer's and dementia. Mm. And so, yeah, there's just a huge correlation between what people eat and the way they feel at a fundamental level. But the challenge is, is that number one, the system's broken. And number two is people don't want to do the work. So system's broken in that you wake up tomorrow, you feel very anxious, you can't function, you go to the doctor, or in many cases, people go to ER and say, I think I'm dying. They do run all the tests and the ECGs and they say, no, your heart's fine. You've actually just had a panic attack. You get some medication, you take that and job done. Apart from you haven't addressed the underlying cause and medication works half the time for some people. And so people kind of miss out the fundamentals they miss out the diet and exercise piece because they go looking for the magic cure which is kind of the the world we live in today where we expect things to be fixed and so yeah so then people either come back to my work and this type of stuff and consider the longer road and it's kind of like i always go back to the fitness angle but if you wanted to run a triathlon you couldn't just go out tomorrow and run one you'd build up over time and you get fitter and you get in shape and eventually you could do it. And so mental health is the same thing. It takes time to make people feel good. It takes time for them to heal. It takes time for them to cultivate confidence so that they can then do what they want to do with their lives. Yeah. And part of it is, though, if they see initially early stress relief or early positive movement by doing something, they're more likely to continue with that. Right. Yeah, I mean, I, we, we have examples of this all the time. You have the phenomenon, the runner's high. I went to the gym yesterday, wasn't feeling it at all, probably because I had to do squats. <laughs> and uh, I put on some crazy rock music and just got my head down and did it, and I came out feeling great. Now, you can't, even with the current level of awareness, I still can't see that going in, even though intellectually I know it. It doesn't feel like it's going to happen. You just have to trust the process. And many of these things are the same thing. It's kind of like getting fitness. You have to trust the fact that if you run five miles and then run six and then run 10, that eventually your body will adapt to that. And we're amazing at adapting to change, but we have to force some change. Yeah, and I can tell that a lot of the people that I interact with in the running community, anyhow, they are using uh, endurance sports running sort of medically, right? They, mm, I, I can yeah. tell that they are normally somewhere on that depression spectrum, and they've figured out that this is their way to stay engaged in the world, right? It's a biochemical stress reliever for them, but like I said, it also provides a, a purpose and a goal. It gives them something to hang their life on, and one of the things that gives people anxiety is uncertainty, right? So if they Absolutely. have a purpose and a goal, even if it's one they've constructed themselves, like I'm going to go run that marathon, you should have less anxiety because you have sort of that through line in your life to get somewhere. Does that make sense? Yeah, and just the fact of having that vision, having that goal of putting your mind to something and doing it, the commitment level, first of all, is going to change the way that you think. And then going through the motions of doing the run or doing the swim or doing the bike or whatever it is, 
you're going to get the good chemical benefits from that. There's been lots of studies that have said that exercise is as if not more beneficial than antidepressants for the treatment of depression and anxiety. The more I learn, the more I believe that even more strongly. But think about the community that you have. And once you go out and do a triathlon, you're going to meet other positive people who are trying to do things with their lives. You're going to meet people who are aspiring for greatness in their own individual way. Sat at home watching TV or going to the pub or whatever it happens to be, you're just not going to be surrounded by those type of people who who are going for it. So you're upgrading your social network in real life. You're upgrading your physical body in real life, and you're going to have to fuel it with nutrition if you want to get to like a a high standard of of kind of recovery and performance. And so all those things combined, it's pretty hard to continue to have depression or anxiety at the same level. It may not be cured, but you're absolutely going to make a huge difference. Yeah, and I see the trajectory is typically people get into the sports because the going out and run it every day is easier than addressing their diet. But yeah. at, at some point, it catches them, whether with age or whatever, it catches them where you just have no choice. And because you're involved in some sort of physical activity, you become very aware of what your body's doing, and that necessarily leads you to the diet thing, right? I've done this for years, tried to outwork it, and I have the type of body where I just have to be mindful because the classic you can't outwork a bad diet is true. I mean, you might be able to do it if you're 19 and you're playing football training, doing two a days, you can eat pizza and drink Coke all day. But for most people, they can't do that. And so at some point, you'll get smart around that. And when you do, you'll realize that it actually makes you feel a lot better anyway, right? There's lots of side benefits, but all of people are always looking for like, how can I have four or five beers a few times a week and still be able to perform? Well, you just can't. I'm sorry. There's just some hard truths where you just have to say like, I just got to do it less or put it down for a bit. You just can't do everything. Right. Yep. And you learn that over time. Yeah. So, So one of the reasons I want to talk to you is that I think the sports aspect of it, the endurance sports aspect of it tends to have an addictive quality as well, which can lead to some actually create anxiety for people, right? So there's a point where people get tied into the community and they get led down the path and they go from doing five miles to 10 miles to 100 miles where now they've built this self-expectation. They've built themselves up that they have to keep performing at some level. And it's very difficult to step off that treadmill, pun intended. Yeah. It actually becomes part of their stress, right? For sure, yeah. If you're trying to as you age, continuing to get record times and win races and and all that kind of stuff. One of the best lessons I've learned in my life in recent years is is this concept of not being attached to the outcome. Mm. And because so much of performance and sports and business and life and everything we do is about for an end goal. Imagine if you just did it for the training. Imagine if you did it for the process, for the journey of getting there. And then on the day, whatever will be, will be, right? I think that's a much lighter way to consider sporting endeavors. And because the byproduct of you doing it is that you're going to have good physical and mental health. You're going to be taking care of yourself. But if you're going to extreme, if you're a 45-year-old man and you're you're trying to beat records and and win triathlons and stuff, then at some point you're going to get to an age where you're not going to be as fast as you used to be. And it's going to be a nice, graceful, slow and steady decline. And one of the other concepts that goes along with not being attached is so often we're hard on our bodies and we're like, 
damn it, my ankle hurts or damn it, my knee hurts. And we got taped up bits of our bodies and we're still trying to perform through the pain and we're taking medication so we can finish the race or do whatever the endeavor is. And I think we have to look at that and say, like, we should be giving back to our bodies and basically rewarding ourselves and being gentle on ourselves. And this flows over to the the mind game. But how often do you reinvest and say, I'm going to get the massage or I'm just going to today, I'm not going to do and bang out another 20 miles. I'm just going to stretch and go and sit in an ice bath or have a hot tub or just cycle gently for a bit and just take that. Because it, I think the long game is being as good at backing off as you are at pushing sometimes. Yep. And that's something I think you, you learn through the cycles, especially if you've gone through a few injury cycles or you get right. older. Um, what about getting a coach? I mean, does getting a coach help here? I mean, either in the athletic sense or in the general sense. Yeah, I mean, coaches help with everything. Coaches just help with everything. That's why Olympic athletes, professional athletes, amazing business people have somebody they can go to and say, I mean, I have them in my life today, well, paid and unpaid, but people I go to and say, here's an idea. Should I proceed with this or, or I just need somebody to run it by so just that concept of going to somebody else and getting some advice is very valuable then you have the added benefit of accountability if you say it out loud to somebody else that you're gonna start the business or run the marathon or whatever the thing is it's just much more likely to happen and then layer on top of that somebody who's done it before and has the experience then it's multiplier times in uh, again across the board across the board whatever it is I was heavily into real estate at one point in my life. I read a couple of books and then thought, I just want to ask the real person some questions. So I hired a coach. It cost a lot of money, and I made 10 times what I would have made if I just tried to figure it out on my own. Hmm. Yeah. Because I didn't make the mistakes. I didn't buy the wrong house in the wrong neighborhood. Right. Yeah, it, right? Accel so, it, it accelerates your learning curve, right? So instead of having to go around the horn three times and learn from your mistakes, you're learning from somebody else's mistakes. Got it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It eliminates the learning lag. So I was actually looking at an article this morning that came out that said every runners are getting slower across the board. And I think this might be part of this realization that less people are focused on the outcome, right? I mean, it always gets interpreted by the general press as, oh, people are just fat and out of shape now. But I think some of it is also just people are letting go. They're seeing it as a, a lifestyle as opposed to the outcome, right, like you said. Yeah, I think the outcome is important, but not at the detriment of the experience. So I think it's admirable to try and attain a specific goal. But I did the marathon in London a few years back and wanted to do it in under four hours because for my ability and fitness level, I thought that was something to aspire for. I missed that by about half an hour. But for me, if I look back and reflect on achieving the time versus the experience the experience was way more valuable seeing the people lining the streets and cheering you on and handing out candies and sugary drinks to keep you going and the all the amazing conversations i had with people as i ran around the course that was the value was in the human connection right that was the bit yep. where i think back and and have a lot of affinity and fondness for those types of events because i just think the people you meet on the way round. That's what makes it great. If I did it on my own, imagine if you did the marathon 26 miles on your own, just running on a treadmill versus in that environment. It's just a world away. And so that's the valuable bit, not the time. Yeah. And the I, experience. Think this, I think I've heard you um, talk through this before of experience versus stuff, right? Yeah. Because if you want to be happier and you want a richer life, try to 
to lean towards having collecting experiences versus uh, stuff. And experiences by nature involve other people, right, and other places. So I kind of correlate this to adventure as well. That's how I like to put it. Absolutely, yeah, you got it. So you want to schedule up some good adventures, all right? And that can be stressful as well. That can give you some anxiety. But there's another piece of this which I think is interesting. goes way back to all when the old-timers used to talk about success strategies and that sort of thing. They used to always say that action is the best cure to fear. Yeah. Some cases that's not true. Some cases it is. In a lot of cases, in run-of-the-mill anxiety situations, it is. But I think preparation, then action, is probably pretty good as well, right? What are your yeah. thoughts on that? Yeah, I've heard somebody say something before. Fear is excitement without the breath. And so I think from a physiological point of view, anxiety and excitement do the same things to our bodies. It just comes down to a lot of interpretation. Mm. Almost like a performance biochemical cocktail that our body gives us, right? Yeah. It knows we're about to go on stage, and it gives us this little shot. And we get to choose whether to use that as a panic attack or an excellent presentation. Yeah, and I would say to anybody who feels like that sometimes, it's very useful to just say out loud, I am excited. I'm excited. And smile and believe it and and own it and go down that, consciously choose that road instead of waiting till you get in the spot to start your speech or yeah. to into the interview or whatever is say i'm excited about this like yeah. i'm ready and prepared and, and off we go so you you kind of make a choice but yeah and that's why i always use the sports analogy for that one if you see people getting interviewed or their nfl debut or whatever it is interviewer says are you nervous they say no i'm excited as the sweat rolls down their cheeks and their hearts racing they're ready to go out and do battle on the field it's very useful to f- have that response if you were stood there and just cool as a cucumber then that doesn't help you win yeah and I, i've seen so many people especially at the marathon distance where they just talk themselves out of it when game day shows up somehow they just it's easier and less stressful to fail than to right. sort of hang with it i don't know what the dynamics of that are but i see we see that a lot especially with the amateurs yeah and i think action helps a lot because once you start moving then it, it breaks up a lot of that anxiety is much more difficult to handle if you're kind of stood still versus if you're doing something if you're taking action even if it's the wrong action at least then you'll know that isn't the right path for you versus being stationary just doesn't help it there's no way for it to dissipate the only way through anxiety is to literally pick it up throw it over your shoulder and say i'm carrying on like i'm going through this you can't go around it or avoid it or defer it like it's going to hang around and that's why if you think of Exposure therapy, which would be micro dosing of the thing that you're scared of over a prolonged amount of time, makes you not afraid of it anymore. If you took somebody who's deathly afraid of flying and said, right, well, now you're an airline steward, every day we're going on the plane and you manage to get them on it, then over days and weeks they would get comfortable with that. Hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. So if we got folks out here in my world who are uh, feeling some anxiety over their training or their life or their event coming up what would you any tips or tools advice for them yeah for sure i got lots to say about that so the first thing i would say is going back to what kind of let's look at the experience as opposed to just the outcome so if you're an amateur for instance and you're going to run in a race i appreciate it's very important and, and all the rest of it but the experience the journey to get in there the journey to the race the journey to the finish line is way more important than when you cross the finish line all of the training you've done, the people you've met, the books you've read, the videos you've watched, all of that stuff, that was all the gold. It wasn't just crossing the line and getting a medal at the end. That's just mm-hmm. that's the, the finishing piece. So I think that's 
kind of really important. And the other thing is that I've come to realize through doing this type of work is that if you look around and think it's just me feeling like this, which is what fear and anxiety makes us feel very insular. The truth is, is that many, many people are feeling that way. And, and I know this because I'm very open about my story and the way I'm feeling. And, and a lot of people say, yeah, me too, because you put it out there and people reciprocate with information. Yeah. So, yeah, those would be a kind of couple of main things to consider would be to kind of be less attached, to enjoy the process and to realize that the cliche kind of you are not alone is so true because I don't think of anxiety as a or even depression as like a chronic thing. I think of it as a human condition and where we all go in and out of these different places and, and it just depends kind of where we are on the spectrum. And, and the last thing I'll say is that outside of the sporting endeavors, I do think that anxiety is a reflection of the alignment in our lives. So when things are very out of alignment in a significant relationship that we're just struggling to stay synced with things or our job is particularly difficult and we kind of know in our heart that it's not for us, but we're sticking out because we want to keep making the money. If you're a sensitive person, anxiety is your reminder that mm. you know, there's something off in, in the dynamic. And I, I use the car analogy because people get it. But if you think about your car, if you didn't put air in the tires and you didn't take care of the suspension and you just neglected it for long enough, then the steering wheel starts shaking eventually, right? Yeah. So that's kind of a good way to look at it is that people often say, I have anxiety around this and they're looking for a solution around the symptom. I would say take right. a step back and look at the broad picture. Look at your story. Yeah, That's yeah. where look, it is. Look at it holistically. Right. Because the anxiety itself is a symptom, right? The wrong question is how do I fix this anxiety? The right question is why is this manifesting right now? Right. Right. What did I do? <laughs> where where have I put myself to cause this uh, disalignment, as you say, that caused it to seep out through the cracks as well? Yeah, and it's a very individual thing. It could be that you're training too hard and eating the wrong food, or it could be you're not sleeping enough, or it could be that you live in the wrong city and you just genuinely don't feel grounded in that place. It's very individual, but that's, in the work I do, I feel like a bit of a detective because I, I really go into the story and understand that broad picture versus somebody says i'm afraid of flying i'm like okay cool but it's not airplanes it's yeah. something else somewhere else that this started from yeah and you're, you're doing good work i think that's useful it's better than just saying here take this pill right yeah increasingly that isn't the right way to do it yeah yeah because so. there's more to it you got to peel back the onion a little bit all right man I uh, appreciate all the work you're doing. Thanks for sharing some of your anxiety knowledge with us. And, yeah. And uh, let people know how they can find you. Yeah, my podcast is pretty simple. It's called The Anxiety Podcast. And uh, you can look that up on iTunes or if you throw a .com on the end, that's the website. If you want to find me on social media, it's just Tim J.P. Collins on the main social media channels. And connect there if you have any questions. At this point, as I said, we've done about 240 episodes. So we've covered a lot of nutrition sports performance lifestyle relationships everything you can think of and more so um lots to have a look at all right brilliant my friend thank you very much thank you all right cheers sometimes it takes a third party to tell us what we already know self-study for life the bigger you grow your island of knowledge the larger the shoreline of what you don't know is but that shouldn't stop you from trying, from learning. All that means is there's no end point to your personal growth. 
The more questions you answer, the more and better questions you create. I'll give you an example. When I started as a young man in my career, I had a degree in business. And I worked in a technology company. And this company was full of engineers. And the engineers acted like their engineering degrees gave them all the answers. So I went back to school at nights, and I got myself an engineering degree. And you know what I discovered? I discovered was they did not have all the answers. They had access to a practical and useful body of knowledge, but it was not a universal set of answers. If anything, they had more questions. The more I learned about calculus and physics, the more I realized how little we know about the universe we live in. It was still a useful learning process, that knowledge of how insignificant and meager our knowledge and our existence is in the grand chaos of the universe did give me a better idea of our place in this world. It's useful. I would argue that so did my reading of so much classical literature and traveling all around the world for work. Each time I gather to myself some parcel of knowledge, it doesn't lead me to definitive answers, but there is some inherent value in it. These broader studies into the nature of humans led me to understand that there are no definitive answers. The key, the trick, is to be okay with that. To be okay with not knowing. And then pick up your tools and learn anyhow. Learn more anyhow. Those who profess to have true answers to the universal questions, I don't trust. They are either manipulative reductionists or they're asking you to abdicate your free will to some manifestation of faith to believe in something they made up because it's easier than living with the realization that the universe of our knowledge has no edges. We've always known this. This is the great dynamic of our human existence. And therefore, as a stranger, give it welcome. There are more things in heaven and earth, Horatio, than are dreamt of in your philosophy. I would argue that the successful people in our world are not so much driven to success by hard work and hustle and all those other current pop culture attributes and actions. I would argue that all success, all great leaps forward, all significant contributions to knowledge and industry and life come from curiosity. And curiosity wins when you get over the fact that there will always be things that are unknowable and commit to learn what can be learned anyhow. And if you commit to a life of learning, regardless of outcome, you can transform your life in the here and now. Great, Chris, you say. So how do we do this? Wonderful philosophy, but how do I work that into my life? What's it look like practically? I'm glad you asked. Here's some tips, some guidelines. So the first one is to make time for self-study. And this could be 20 minutes or 30 minutes or 10 minutes in the morning or the evening or at lunch as part of your routine. The important part would be to actively schedule it and do it. Set your timer for 20 minutes and read or study until that time is up. Dedicate that time. Commit to it like part of your training. And you might say that 20 minutes a day isn't worth the effort. I have crates full of books that I have read that would argue differently. It's okay if this doesn't come naturally to you. There are books that I have read that I had to bash my way through 20 minutes at a time over the course of years. 
And I stayed with it because I knew the things I could learn were important. Secondly, use that in-between time in your life as an opportunity to study. With your smartphone, the tendency these days is to take that standing-in-line time and use it to surf some social media timeline, which is the learning equivalent of eating potato chips while drinking soda pop. Instead, have a few books or audios. Have them queued up and ready to go. You can read books, listen to audio, take courses on that smartphone too, you know. And if you add up all that driving, wandering, walking, and waiting time in your week, you've got plenty of time for learning stuff. Third, sample things that are outside your comfort zone, outside of your domain of expertise. And whether these are things from a discipline that you have no knowledge of or things that outright make you uncomfortable. Learn broadly. It is these broad learnings, these horizontal curiosities, that enable us to make connections between seemingly unrelated data points. Think of it as trying on different costumes. These broad, seemingly unrelated ideas are the raw material of innovation and creativity. Don't get stuck in one genre or domain. And listen to your network if you want to know what to look at. One of the cool things about the universal spread of information right now is that you can crowdsource your studying. Many of the interviews of successful people, they ask, what books would you recommend? And when you hear two or three different people recommending the same book as formative or impactful, go get it, read it. And then finally, don't just learn, try to process what you learn. When you come to a passage that knocks loose some electrons in your brain, make a note. Capture that learning and process it. Write about it in your journal or share it with someone else and get their opinion. That picking up and inspecting the thing, the stuff of an idea, will change the shoreline of your world. And those are my thoughts on being a curious self-learner throughout the course of your life. What is the value of having all this knowledge bundled up and bouncing around in your brain? Well, it gives you the raw material to create things. It gives you the basis to think critically and effectively. But at the end of the day, the end of the long, long day, curiosity and learning are a reward in themselves. Okay, now we're going to move you towards the exit, please. Okay, my friends, you have scampered, scurried, and anxiously run to the end of episode 4-370 of the Run Run Live podcast. Now you can relax. You can relax now. You're in a safe place. And like I said, I'm training for an October race, probably the main marathon. I'm going to interview the race director today and see if I can weasel a comp entry out of him. (laughs) But I do. I love these old marathons. These old city marathons have been around for a long time. I like running those. I'll probably do the Wapak Trail race as well, which is one of my club's races. You should come up and do that. I might do it as a two-person relay with Teresa. She and I are still planning to climb some mountains, but she's super busy with school, so we've scaled back those expectations. I caught a big bunny in my varmint trap. (laughs) I didn't eat it. Nah, I let it go. I was hoping to get the woodchuck. This week, that woodchuck, it forced its way past the gate into my garden and set up shop. Somewhere between Sunday and Wednesday, that critter dug a den under one of my beds, and ate everything in my garden. 
There you go, a little bird song. A little cicada for emphasis there. So I threw a bomb down his hole, and I haven't seen him since, so I hope that doesn't make the tomatoes taste funny. Our friend Buddy, the old wonder dog, he's doing fine. He's quite content. We get him out every now and then for a 20-minute trot in the woods, and he's almost totally deaf now, like I said. You have to tap him on the shoulder to get his attention, and it startles him. It's like I'm appearing out of nowhere. I'm, I'm magically materializing. And he gets very concerned now when he's out in the front lawn because he can't hear us in the house. And he thinks we've abandoned him. And he has to come back in and check on us. And when I take him out in the woods, I have to keep an eye on him because he loses track of where I am. And I have to turn around and run back down the trail to him. So like I said, he's happy. He's content. He's sanguine. Who could ask for more? One of the books I'm reading is The Active Side of Infinity by Carlos Castaneda. Yeah, I he had his 15 minutes of fame in the 60s for a sort of Eastern hallucinogenic Native American philosophy. And I have an old hard copy, but you can actually download that book for free. And there's even an audio version for free on YouTube. The one interesting nugget of thought I pulled out of it, actually in the introduction and in the title itself, is this Eastern or philosophy that says... There's no birth or death or life per se. There's only different points of intensity on an infinite existence. And there's not a beginning or an end. Birth is not a beginning, but a manifestation of intensity. Death is not an end, but a manifestation of a different intensity. There are points on an infinite spectrum. And therefore, life is only the active side of infinity. So... Stay away from the peyote, and I'll see you out there. And then he thought that he just couldn't die. So Ned, he laughed so hard it made him cry. All right, we'll see how this goes. Recording outside in the backyard. Hello, my friends, and welcome to episode three. Oh, wait. Whoa. Had to wait for that airplane to go by. Alrighty, then.